0: Block Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech and language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me To Talk The Podcast. Today we're going to pick back up where we left off with the last show. And if you'll remember, actually I guess it's the show before last, because in, this is show three, number 346, And in show number 344, we started this series. So let me just say, you're going to be behind if you haven't gone back and listened to show 344. But there what we did is we talked about the hierarchy that we use for working with late-talking toddlers. And I'm calling this little series, I Need a Plan, because so many times as a parent of a late-talker or even as a therapist, even if you've worked for a while, you see a child – You sort of know what you're going to do. You get in there and then you realize three or four sessions in or a parent, it might even be, gosh, sooner than that, three or four minutes in, and you think, hey, I decided I was going to work on speech with my kid and I'm going to make a difference with him at home and I've got a big commitment to do that and then, you don't know what to do. (laughs) You're kind of lost. You think, oh, no, and that's where the whole I need a plan comes from. And if you'll remember back in Show 344, I talked about how important it is to really make sure that you're organized when you are addressing issues with late talking toddlers and how we look at four big general areas. And not to be too redundant, let's just quickly review those areas because having this hierarchy really keeps us on track and here's why. When we're talking about late talkers, we're mostly thinking about what? Expressive language or talking or saying words. But many times as a parent and, again, sometimes even as a therapist, especially if you are not a speech-language pathologist, we kind of put the cart before the horse. We're thinking about what can I do to get this child to talk? What can I do to help him say more words? What can I do to help him? learn how to communicate or clean up what he is saying. And we think that's the primary problem when really there are underlying or root issues that are contributing to that problem. And so then we start working at a level where there is no way the child can be successful. We start working on having a child say words or again on pronunciation when really, 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 we should be focusing on skills that come earlier. So this is my whole little hierarchy for looking at late talkers. And again, just knowing this one basic principle will save you a whole lot of heartache as a therapist. It will get you on track faster than any other method I know. So let's just review what these four big areas are. First of all, we're looking at social and interaction skills. And so engagement or reciprocity. Now, if you're a parent, you may be hearing that and thinking, I don't know what she's talking about, (laughs) but social skills are the foundation for communicating. You know, it always takes at least two people to communicate. And so when you have a little one who's disconnected or isolated or it's really hard to get his attention, there's no way you're going to be able to teach him how to talk or certainly how to understand words until you get that whole response. Uh, him responding to you more firmly established and so this is where we start with every child and this is particularly important when uh, we see a toddler who has red flags for autism. So here it would mean that the child doesn't respond to his name, it takes a lot to get his attention, he doesn't really look at you, he avoids a lot of interaction with people, he seems to constantly be trying to get away. If you, he might be looking at a book, but the second you sit down to do it with them, boop, you know, he is out of there. Or he's just so focused on what he's doing. Again, let's use uh, the book example. He's sitting there. He is flipping the pages. He is looking at the pictures, but he does not let you hold the book. He doesn't seem interested when you're talking about the book. He doesn't look at you and include you in that activity at all. And sometimes parents miss that. They don't realize that their child isn't as connected to them. They're not realizing that they're not getting a lot of eye contact or there's no real attention to the parent at all beyond just kind of a fleeting, um, maybe a little moment of comfort or if a parent is really persistent in getting the child to interact with them. It might be there for just a little bit, but again, they don't realize how disengaged their child is. And so this is super, super important for us as therapists. And we're going to talk about this social piece a lot today, because that's actually the area that we're focused on, This, or that we're going to focus on first, this first area. It's super, super important as therapists to help parents recognize that. And let me just say, too, that can be a hard sell for some parents, because, you know, any of us Whatever we do every day becomes our normal. So even if things are very atypical, if we do it over and over and over and over and over again, it's normalized. And so that's the same with a parent. Their child is their normal. And so unless they've had lots of experience with other children, unless they've had older children, and sometimes even when they've had older children, parents will say things like, every child is different or his personality is so different from my first child when really it's not a temperament or personality issue. There's a a developmental difference or, or, dare I say, a neurological difference. And so we have to help parents see those things and really begin to help them identify, gosh, he's not looking at me as often as I see other children look at their parents or he's not, he doesn't take turns with me. He's not seeking me out as often during the day. He would rather spend hours and hours alone in his room or just roaming through our home rather than really sitting down and doing something with me. And sometimes, too, parents can be misled with infrequent contact, and they they believe, that again, that that's the norm because that's what their child does, and so they don't know how persistent typically developing toddlers are. You know, when we... Uh, work with children with delays, we often get a real skewed perception of that ourselves as therapists. And so then when we are around a toddler who's typically developing, and especially when when you haven't been around a typically developing kid in a long time, you're shocked with how often they want to interact with you and engage you, or even if they're a little shy at the beginning, boy, they are looking at you and just watching your every single move, even if they're not saying very much yet. And lots of times uh, parents don't realize that their child isn't using lots of gestures or lots of nonverbal ways of communicating that another child, even a child with a language delay, would be using, like pointing, like leading, and I don't mean the kind of leading that kids with autism do where they lead you and don't seem to have any real awareness (laughs) Um, With eye contact, again, in that joint attention piece, it's still kind of a, I'm using this parent here, his hand, as my tool, that kind of thing. But, again, they they just, parents don't realize how infrequent or how little their child is communicating, and and this is beyond using words. I'm talking about all the nonverbal things, like eye contact, like those gestures that we just mentioned So you'll probably have to do some really hard talking about that with a parent, especially when a parent seems unaware that that's the issue. And so, again, this is the first piece. This is the social skills piece. And so when we have a child who has some red flags for autism and some some markers for disconnectedness, and they're just not as engaged and interactive as we would want them to be, children who avoid interaction, this is where we start with therapy. And that's the first piece, even if the parent has said, I only want them to talk or, you know, I, I, he's sort of is trying to talk but I can't understand what he says and that sort of would indicate that there's an intelligibility or an articulation problem when... We can't do a thing about those later developing areas yet until we get a hold on these social skills and uh, until a child is interacting with us more frequently. So that's the first piece. That's that first little step in the hierarchy. The next piece is receptive language. Now let me just say receptive language is so closely tied to cognition in toddlers or children that are under three or three and under, that we really can't separate it at this developmental level, although as educators and therapists we often do. But for the sake of this discussion, let's just keep cognition tied with receptive language. So this is the second piece that we would look at with a child. Now, receptive language means what a child understands or comprehends. And let me just say if you're a therapist and you're listening to the show and you're thinking, gosh, I already know all this. This is such a basic review. Let me tell you why the show is important. This kind of wording is exactly what you should be saying to parents. This is exactly the kind of conversation you should be having with a parent. And so when you're going in and you're talking about this with parents and and they're telling you Uh, Let's take that example we already used. Let's say it's a kid who's not talking yet, but a parent's really not understanding there's so many other prerequisite skills missing first. This is the kind of information you would give them. You would say, hey, look, there are four big areas that we look at with communication development. And first, let's talk about the social piece. And you would go through the kind of discussion that I just had the last couple of minutes about social skills, and then you would move on to cognitive receptive skills. So again, if you're a therapist kind of sitting there thinking, thinking, I know all this, I know all this, listen for the words, listen for maybe a catchphrase or listen for an explanation that you've been a little rocky about, for something that you're not saying. You know, sometimes with parents, (laughs) we'll go to a visit week after week after week after week and we just know that they are not understanding the depth of their child's issues, or they're just for some reason not connecting the information that we're giving them, and all of a sudden we say it in a different way, and it makes sense and i if you've taken any of my courses i kind of I talk about this in every course, and I kind of say, you know oh, ah, it's like you say the magic words, and all of a sudden a parent gets. they understand it. And so that's again why we're talking about this and why this information can be helpful for you. And so let's go back to this second piece and let's talk about the kinds of information that we share with parents so they understand what we're talking about with this hierarchy. So back to this receptive language cognitive category. Define what receptive language is. Define what cognition is. And what I always say to parents We're talking about comprehension. We're talking about what a child understands. We're talking about, quote, unquote, how smart a child is, what he remembers, how he thinks, how he plans, how he organizes. And attention is also included under this big hierarchy or under this category in the big hierarchy when I'm thinking about it. Now, our OT friends will talk a lot about attention with sensory processing, but if we're just really looking at this as, strictly a language development model, this is where we would put attention. And you would say to a parent, um, regarding attention and regarding cognitive skills, when children have issues with cognition, they are not going to understand words as well as other children their own age because they're not still enough. (laughs) They're not tuned in enough or they're not... um, paying attention enough, and again, that would be more a cognitive term than the still enough or the uh, connected enough. That would mostly be back in that social category, but this is how you want to explain it, and this is, you're, you're giving, when you're giving these explanations, you're really answering the biggest question that a parent might have, why is my child not talking yet? Why am I not hearing words? So when you go, take the time to go through a hierarchy like this, and you explain We're not ready to work on words yet. I can't really teach him how to talk yet because he's missing these big areas or there are some weaknesses in these big areas that we have to address first. And so that's what we want to do as we walk through this. And so, again, this is the receptive language area. And and this is a hard sell for a lot of parents too because – Many, many times they just assume that their child understands everything and when a child isn't doing things like following directions or even really more isolated skills like pointing to body parts or identifying pictures or, um, oh gosh, any kind of receptive language skill that you would pick out. When they're not doing that so many times, parents really think a child is choosing not to do that and choosing to be noncompliant, choosing to be stubborn, choosing to be lazy, and so we have to say i don't think that's it at all. I think if he could do it, he would do it, and so we're going to really look at receptive language and make sure that we are teaching him to understand words that we are helping him learning how to follow learn how to follow directions that we are teaching those. Cognitive premises that come first, like play skills, like uh, the big cognitive uh, milestones of cause and effect, and object permanence, and simple problem solving. And so we're lumping lots of other general developmental areas like play, like cognition, closely in this receptive language category. But this, again, forms the foundation for communication and forms the foundation for not only saying words, but you have to understand words first. So that's how we have to really explain that to parents so that they know that if a child does not understand language well enough to consistently follow simple directions He's not going to talk. And even if he does say some words, they're not going to be communicative. And do you know what I mean by that? You know, a lot of times we'll have children who are late talkers, and they do have a handful of words, but the words seem to kind of be out of the blue, meaning that a child might say a word, but he's not really using that word to request. He's not really using that word to communicate with another person. He might echo it or, or um Imitate it, and again, imitation is always a good thing, unless we can't ever link that that word with meaning. And so, you have to spend some time talking to parents about that, um, looking at what's communicative or communicative, however you say that word. But looking at it, are are the existing words in the child's vocabulary? How is he using those? Is he really? Is it? Is he popping those out? Is that just kind of a solitary? incident where he's saying it to say it and not really saying it to his parents, not really, again, that pragmatic function of requesting or responding or uh, commenting, or is it just because he's heard a parent say the word? So we have to talk about that, and when children are in that category or when they're they're using words in that way, we have to back up. We have to back up and really, really focus on this receptive language piece, and again, sometimes that's a hard sell for a parent because they're only concerned with what their child says. And you have to really, really make sure that they know that children have to understand words before they use those words to talk. So that's receptive language. It's huge, 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 huge. It's a big, big piece. And I always say, and if you've listened to the show, you know you've heard me say this over and over, but I'm going to be a broken record and repeat it. I think receptive language delays are the most overlooked delay in children in early intervention everywhere because, again, parents don't always notice that problem and we, uh, as therapists, don't always take the time to really, really do thorough assessments or that we believe that a child's non-compliance is due to behavior rather than a true receptive language problem. So you have to really, really look at that area so carefully. All right, so that was the second area. And just for the sake of review, so that you are really holding this information in your mind, social skills was first, and the next we had receptive language, and then the third big piece would be expressive language. Now, again, this is where most parents want to start. And for some kids in our caseload, they're ready. They are following Simple one step commands. They are identifying objects. They are understanding questions. They are really, really making sense of their little worlds around them. Their play skills are good. So, when we get kids that are like that, they are ready for targeting our expressive language goals. And again, it can be just words, it could also be any other way, any other nonverbal method that a child uses to communicate. So, some kids. Using gestures at this level, and that's fine. Gestures always precede spoken words, So we'll also include gestures in this category. Children who are using alternative or augmentative communication systems like pictures or like signs. I know signs are really falling out of favor right now, and lots of people are kind of... not recommending that we use signs as often with children who have language delays as we have in the past. But frankly, some kids need that. They need that extra motor planning practice that kind of kicks their little speech systems into uh, developing and acquiring skills when, when, when when we give them that additional motor planning practice with using signs. So again, we're looking at however a child would express himself here. And that's the third piece. And, again, before we can get to the spoken piece, kids have to vocalize consistently. So if we have children that are super, super quiet, even though this is really a speech problem, here's where we would think about that with expressive language. How does the child imitate? And before we can get a kid to use words spontaneously, That imitation piece is so, so important. And lots of times that's what's really missing with a child. They may be following some directions and their play may be coming along, but they really don't understand that they should be copying and repeating what they see an adult do. And imitating is such a huge part of typical um, development with toddlers. You know, a child at about 18 months Old. one of his primary activities is just following his mom and dad around the house and doing what they do. So if mom is trying to wash off the table, he wants to wash off the table too. If mom is trying to uh, get her purse and get things ready to go, you'll see a child sort of do that thing too. If dad's in the bathroom wanting to go to the bathroom, oh, boy, the little boy's there too, ripping that diaper off or getting that pull-up off, he wants to go too. So imitation is such a huge part of expressive language development, and so when a kid isn't imitating words or sounds, we have to back up and and look at those earlier, easier levels of imitation. And so that's included in that expressive language piece. And that, that was the third area, so then we're finally ready to talk about that fourth area which is speech intelligibility or articulation. And again, unless a child is socially connected and understands and follows directions, his receptive language piece, and then is beginning to use some words, we can't even think about that intelligibility piece. So those are those four big areas there. All right, so with this I Need a Plan series, if you listen to the previous show, we took a single activity water play, and we walked through what you could do with water play in every single area. And again, this would probably be more relevant for therapists, thinking, okay, I'm going to do water play with all the kids on my caseload this week. So no matter where a kid is functioning developmentally, I'm gonna use water play. And so we walked through what the social skill goals would be, and then what the receptive language and cognitive goals would be. And we walked through what the expressive language goals would be, and then finally we talked about speech intelligibility. Today we're taking the same model, social, uh, well let's just say this, we're taking this model and and doing it a little bit differently. We're looking at just the first little piece there, social skills, and then we're gonna walk through what a parent at home would be doing all day long to support that social skill development. And that's what we'll do over this next four shows. We'll take the areas that we just talked about, social, receptive, expressive, and intelligibility, and then walk through this so that you really have a good handle of this uh, overall hierarchy for looking at toddlers with developmental delays, and certainly that would include our little friends who are late talkers, too. All right. so. Let's take a minute and talk about everyday routines for uh, for a, just a brief review. And this information comes from a website called First Words Project. It's by Amy Weatherby, and her specialty is autism. She's launched a great website a few years ago called Autism Navigator. And if you're a speech pathologist and need more information about autism, it's a great, great resource for you. And if you're a parent, particularly if you're a parent wondering gosh, you know, I wonder if uh, if my child does have autism. I'm a little bit worried about autism. I don't really want to talk to anybody about this yet. I need to get some more information on my own. Or let's say some, a professional has mentioned this to you and you're waiting on an evaluation. Or it's just a lingering fear that you may have and you just want to, again, get information that's that's independent of you having to talk with someone about it. Autism Navigator is a fantastic Highly, highly recommend it. All right, so let's look at this information that Dr. Weatherby provides about working on skills in every everyday routines. And, you know, sometimes therapists call this daily routines. And certainly when we're working in chil- with children in state early intervention programs, When we're developing their IFSPs, we talk a lot about daily routines and how important it is to really fold our therapy activities and strategies into the context of what a family does all day, every day. And I really like how Dr. Weatherby has organized everyday routines into eight big categories. So let's just review these. First of all, uh, caregiving activities. So this would mean anything like dressing and meals, anything where um, a parent is really taking care of a child. And actually meals aren't included. I'm sorry I misspoke. So things like changing diapers, things like giving a bath, things like brushing their teeth and washing their hands. So those are caregiving activities. And just think about how often that happens in, during the day with a toddler and mom and dad and the sitter or whoever else is there. So that's that's a huge portion of the day. Even if it just takes place a couple of minutes at a time, there's still lots and lots of opportunities for caregiving activities through the day. The next one, of course, I jumped ahead, but it would be meals and snacks. So anytime a kid is getting something to eat, that would be a meal or a snack. She's divided play into three separate categories. First of all, play with people. So this would be social games, so things like peek things like patty cake or I'm gonna get you or hide and seek any of the little play routines that we do with children that don't involve anything else except you and the kid. And this is where when I just jokingly refer to adults there as we as adults are the toy <laughs> when this happens. So play with people. Certainly we have play with toys and that could include, you know, toys from all kinds of categories. Doctor Weatherby breaks this down into constructive play. So play with items where you're building and making things like blocks. Even things like puzzles and shape sorters go into this constructive category. And then she also calls what I call arts and crafts (laughs) fluid materials like Play-Doh sand or finger paint and certainly traditional toys. And that would be toys that are at that earlier level, all the way up to toys that are used more for pretend play like vehicles, animals, and dolls. So those were the three play categories. So those are our our five out of that eight. Let's move on to talk about the remaining three because sometimes as therapists, especially in state early intervention programs, we don't always get to these next categories, but they are super, super important. And let me say one more thing about that. Sometimes, therapists don't even consider play with toys as a daily routine, and I just want to gasp every time I hear that because I think play really makes up the majority of a child's day, and sometimes that play is solitary or independent, but a lot of times that play really is or can be or should be with another person, particularly when there are developmental delays. You know, as adults, we need to be in there making sure that children understand how to play with toys and the kinds of things that they should do because there are so many opportunities for learning uh, through Play With Toys. So if you're if you're not uh, customarily considering play a daily routine, I highly encourage you to reconsider that so that when you're talking with parents about it, you're giving them ideas for play. And you're teaching them how to play, how to play with their child, how to get down on the floor and really engage because when parents don't do that, They're missing a huge, huge opportunity to teach their child not only language, but everything. It's super, super important. All right, these last three categories are often overlooked too. The first one she calls books, letters, and numbers. And when I talk to parents about it, I just call it books because I I think reading books is just a really, really important activity. A lot of therapists include... Screen time within this category, we're going to talk about this in just a minute as one of our strategies with uh, what we'll say to parents about screen time. But if we're looking at Dr. Weatherby's eight everyday activity categories, she classifies books, letters, numbers, and screen time kind of all as one because she says these activities promote language and literacy. And certainly we have lots of little friends who are really interested in books and really interested in that kind of visual information anyway. That's kind of their activity preference. Some of our little friends get so fixated on letters and numbers, though, and they do it um, almost obsessively and have... Their only words and their vocabularies are really tied to those academic concepts like letters, shapes, numbers, and colors, and we don't really want to encourage that at the beginning either, unless it's our only way into language. And so again, you've kind of got a catch-22 there. I don't really focus on teaching any of those concepts with a child. If they already know it and if that's kind of their little hot button, that's great. We'll use it. But otherwise, I want children to have a much more functional vocabulary. You know, there's only so many times a day a child can say, two, 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 and have it really mean anything. He needs words like bye-bye and shoo and no and... Uh, You know, milk and one-up, you know, he needs words that, mama, words that he can use and say all day long to communicate messages. And there are just such limited opportunities to use those academic words. But that is an activity category. It is important when we're building a foundation for literacy. But we can't use that to the exclusion of everything else. And sometimes parents really get fixated on this category because they're so worried that their child won't be smart or won't be ready for school when, they're, when it's time to go to school as a preschooler or a kindergartner. So this is, again, another area where we might have to do a hard sell with the parent and really talk about how this just needs to be a sliver of what we do with the child, not everything. It just needs to be part of that. Um, I think I skipped over this one with family chores. Lots of times parents don't think about including their children with family chores, but guys, it is so, so important that children not be isolated and that they be included just as mom goes through her day. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into strategies for social skills. But family chores are like picking up toys, like doing the laundry, feeding a pet, going outside to take the trash out or get the mail, or any kind of thing that's a little job that a family would do. And toddlers can be a big part of that. And again, helping a child learn to do his part would be one of the strategies that we'll use for that. And that doesn't mean that we're putting into work that we are going to put a vacuum cleaner in a two-year-old's hands. It's not what we're talking about here. But it does mean including them in all of the things that families do. And the last activity category that she includes is so important, especially for our little guys who do have red flags with autism, and these would be transitions. And transitions are the time between activities. And it's just... So important, especially for our little friends who are at risk for autism, that we add predictability and that we add flexibility and that they learn how to get from uh, eating breakfast to moving on to do something else, or the big ones are when they're changing environments, so that they're learning how to leave one place that they don't really want to leave, or they're learning how to give up a preferred toy and move on to something else. So transitions can be huge and we need to be talking to parents about strategies and ways to make those times easier and we need to include transitions as part of uh, what we would again consider a daily routine and how we work on whatever goal we're working on and uh, carry that through even through those transition times. So. Today our focus is really looking at that first big area here, so looking at social skill development and what a parent can do all day long to target social skills. And so this would be, if you're a therapist, this would be what you would talk to your parent about, especially in those first few weeks of therapy when, in a Especially when a parent is saying, "You know, I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk, but you know that there's a big social engagement problem, these would be the kinds of recommendations that you were making day one and you're telling a parent, "Look, we've got to get this social piece going. I've got to see him get more interactive and more consistently responsive." before we're going to think about helping him really learn how to use words yet. So let's look at things like eye contact, things like joint attention. And if you're a therapist, you know what joint attention is, but you may not know how to explain that to a parent. So how well does your child share attention with you? How well can you get him to shift attention from what he wants to do to what you want him to look at? And that's critical for teaching language because unless a child is paying attention to what you are narrating or what you are labeling, he makes it, he makes no connection. So if he's sit let's just say he's sitting and eating in his high chair and mom is going on and on and on and doing a Fabulous job of labeling what she's doing in the kitchen, but he has no attention to her whatsoever. And she may be talking about the milk and the cereal and the toast or the yogurt, whatever else she's preparing, or even something going on around them, talking about his big sister who's washing her hands at the sink. Unless the child is really focused on and zoned in on what mom wants him to pay attention to the language opportunities are just non-existent. So we have to really, really help parents understand about that piece. And then one thing I want to talk about in the social skills section is, again, a foundational skill of turn-taking. So how does a child not only respond to you and not only pay attention to what you're doing, but what does he do about that? How does he insert himself into that little interaction? So let's think about those skills along with basic Social skills like smiling and laughing, and certainly along with something like pain, just just having more awareness of you or a better tolerance for interaction. So many of our little friends with social skill differences really get pretty touchy and pretty um, upset or irritated when we force them or require them or even just a, a, a gentler word, when we want them to interact with us. So here we're gonna talk about ways that a parent can really look at this social skill piece and work on it all day long. So what I like to say when we're working on social skills is just to a parent, interaction is our only goal here. We're not worried about talking yet. We're not even really worried about understanding language and following directions yet. We're just we're just going to focus on how well he wants to be with me. How much does he enjoy our time together? Is he constantly trying to get away or is he constantly checked out? But is he really, really with me when we're doing this kind of activity? We don't want to see him avoiding and ignoring and pushing away and tuning out. We want to see him... Staying with us and wanting to be near us and coming when we call him and smiling and laughing and that happy, pleasant participation. And sometimes the very best advice I can give a parent who's working on interaction, again, as this first little skill is to keep a child with you all day long. Keep them in close proximity. Do not allow them to stay in their room alone for long periods of time. Lots of times parents don't even know what a child is doing, and then they go, and a child is just sitting there stimming, just stimming, stimming, stimming. And for a parent who might not understand that term, that's just kind of a slang word that professionals use to mean self-stimulatory activities. So that might mean he's flapping his little arms, he's flipping pages in a book repetitively but not really looking at the book. He's watching a toy that spins, spins, he might even be down on his belly, you know, real super focused with that, but it's just perseverative or or just lots and lots of repetition over and over and over again, and there's he's really not taking in anything else going on around him. And when that happens with a child, they're pretty limited in what they're processing and in what they're really learning. And certainly language is a part of that. They're not really focusing on linking meaning with words or using words to learn how to communicate, learn how to request, learn how to comment, learn how to respond. So we have to limit those opportunities. And the best way to do that is just by having them with you all day which is kind of a pain for some parents because they think, oh, I was happy that he was so independent. I was happy that he could do his own thing, you know. Especially, you know, this is it's just terrible when a mom will say, you know, I work at home and I really need him to occupy himself all day. And I think, oh, no, you know, we're just, it would be, you know, maybe okay if a child had fantastic language skills, but that is just a calamity when a child is not interacting and when there's a big, big language delay. So we first have to make sure that we keep children with us. And kids have to learn how to tolerate that extended social contact. And that begins by being with someone and learning to like or at least tolerate being with someone most of the day. So if a mom is in the bedroom making up the bed, the child needs to be right there. If a mom is doing laundry, the child needs to be right there. If a mom goes is in the kitchen preparing a meal or just kind of hanging out in the den doing her own thing. That's where her kid needs to be. And in this technology-driven world, we have to tell parents, now not only does your child have to be close to you, but you have to be paying attention. (laughs) So for some parents, that really means a frank look at how much time they're spending on devices. Are they constantly on their tablet? Are they on their phone all day long? And so no wonder a child would be disengaged and disconnected when he doesn't have a parent who's connected either. So you'll have to have some hard conversations about that as well. And that gets easier with time. If you're a new therapist listening to this or a therapist with maybe a a less assertive personality, Those conversations are super, super difficult in the beginning, but you'll need to have them with parents because many, many times they don't understand that that's what's going wrong, that a child just really isn't spending enough one-on-one time with an adult to learn how to communicate. They just think their kid's going to pick it up automatically when really there needs to be more structured, more focused, more intentional one-on-one communication. Now, I'll just tell you kind of on a little side note here, Uh, The screen time recommendation, you know, from the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's changed a little bit. It used to be that children under three, they just recommended no TV at all. But now the American Academy of Pediatrics has loosened that a little bit, but they've said that any kind of screen time needs to be interactive. So that means if a child is on your iPad playing an app, you need to be right there with them, providing information and guiding them and giving them that interactive social piece. If they're watching a movie, it really doesn't need to be, you know, a three-hour marathon <laughs> where they're completely checked out and disengaged from any kind of reality. You need to be with them and talking about what's going on in that short little 20-minute show, 30-minute show, whatever. It The research is in and really, really tells us how damaging screen time can be, particularly for children who have these social skill issues. And let me just say, too, if you are on my email uh, list, if you get an email from me every day, if you've subscribed to that, uh, about a week ago, I wrote a post, and it's at com. if you've not read it, but the title of it is No TV Even For Me. And my husband and I, the last couple of months, have just stopped watching television. And at the beginning, it wasn't as intentional as it is now. You know, we just turned it off, and boy, have we regained a lot of time back in our life and we are now no longer having conversations about things like, uh, oh, just whatever we watched on TV or just, you know, I, let me just say this because I know I don't want to upset people. I know I kind of made some comments in the post that I wrote about, you know, we don't talk about politics anymore and I just kind of made a little parenthetical uh, insertion there and just said, ugh, you know, like we're not talking about Donald Trump and if you like him or don't like him all day, we're just not doing that anymore because we don't constantly have, you know, the news on in the background. And so this has been a really big change for us with the calmness and peace and serenity. And so just seeing that change into, you know, 52-year-old grown adults, I can – you know, I, I I think about this on a personal level now. I have just railed against TV and extended screen time for children on my caseload forever. But now seeing the positive benefits that it's made, you know, even for two semi-normal adults versus a child, who has this kind of problem with attention and with social interaction? You know, it is re- it can really, really be life changing. And parents who do implement a very limited or no screen time policy in their home see benefits because their children do become more engaged and they do play with regular toys more often and they are more interactive with everything. And language does start to come along and they're less irritated and less overstimulated and less cranky all day so that's a big big piece of this and these conversations of uh, therapists that we should be having with parents you know those are super super important so don't don't chicken out of those if you're a therapist we've got to talk to parents about that uh, recommendation from the american academy of pediatrics and how damaging that can be all right so back to social skill we're just going to keep the children with us uh, keeping them in our line of vision, meaning that we give them opportunities to make eye contact, so important as we do things like meals, like bath time. So that would mean you sit across from them if they're in a little high chair, or you sit across from them when uh, they're taking a bath. You're down on the floor with them, and you're eye to eye, face to face, so that you're giving them a reason to look at you. And beyond just having. Right. You want to be as animated and as lively and as vibrant as you can be because, again, you are competing with any kind of environmental distraction he might have. If he likes a toy, you're kind of competing with that. As a parent, so you've got to get yourself in there and be super, super uh, relevant during those things. That would mean something like during bath time, diaper changes, and getting dressed, you're also doing things like that I call in my book, Let's Talk About Talking, Showing, holding, giving routines. So you're going to show a child an item that's necessary for the next step of what you're doing. You're going to hold the item and let him hold the item as you prepare to use it. You're going to give him the item and then let him give it back to you. So show, hold, and give. So again, this is the turn-taking piece. So this was, let's do first. With diaper changes. So let's say you're going to show him that you're changing his diaper. You're going to hold his diaper up and show it to him. And then you're going to say, why don't you hold this for mommy? As you are getting his dirty diaper off, he's got a part of this now because his little job is to hold that diaper. And then when it's time to get that new diaper on, you're going to hold your hand out and get that diaper back. You can do the same thing with meals, with when it's time to get him his sippy cup or give him his little plate with his food on it. The show, hold, give routines are just super for getting that initial uh, turn-taking going. You can also do turn-taking with just little trading games. So let's go back to that meal example. Let's say that he has a sippy cup and you want him to give it back to you. And you could even do something like pretend to drink, you know, and then give the sippy cup back to him and let him drink. Or you could let him try to feed you. You know, if he's eating a snack of goldfish, tell him that you're hungry and see if he'll put that little fish in your mouth too. And so that nice back and forth. Can you see how you're working on social skills? Even with something as simple as these little show, hold, and give and turn-taking games, it makes a huge, huge difference with children, especially those who have not been as socially connected. All right, I can't believe we're at the end of this show. I can tell I haven't – the the podcast, if we haven't been as regular this summer – because I'm shocked that we're at the end of the show and I didn't get through all of these strategies and all these daily routines. So this is where we're gonna pick up next time. We'll finish talking about social interaction and everyday routines, and then we'll probably even have time to move on to cognition and receptive language. I hope that you are going to enjoy this series, and I hope that as a therapist, you're thinking about this hierarchy with social skills, receptive skills, then expressive, then intelligibility. And as a parent, my goal for this show and for this overall series is for you to kind of understand what's important and what's not. So if you have a child who is missing important social connections, that's where you need to be, uh, begin with your child, and that's where you need to focus on. And we'll worry about all this other stuff once he gets a little bit better with the interacting piece. All right, that's all for today. We'll pick up with this next time. Thanks so much for joining have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.